0: Hey everybody, welcome again to another episode of Driving the Deal. I'm Brian Fortune with the Farragut Square Group. Thanks everybody for joining us again. Our topic for the last three episodes has been behavioral health with our friends at Brentwood Capital in Nashville. And for our third episode, we'll be talking about the broader psychiatry field, which encompasses a lot of different modalities. This is very exciting and of course follows on our discussions on autism and also on substance abuse. If you did not get a chance to listen to those can go back or ask us and we'll send you a link to it. Pretty excited to conclude this series. It's been very informative. And joining us again is our friend, L.A. Galleon from Brentwood. Welcome aboard. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the discussion today. Let's talk a little bit about the macro environment and kind of broader psychiatric services like supply-demand. And then be interesting to hear your thoughts on how supply-demand breaks down in terms of inpatient versus outpatient or some other segment. Sure.
1: I think the headline that you're going to think about on the demands side is one in 5 Americans has some kind of mental illness, mental issue. So that's just under 50 million Americans have some kind of condition. And then you look at the supply side. The last reported data in 1997 there were 48,000 psychiatrists. There's now 28,000 and declining. So that's a picture of the amount of people who need care versus the caregivers or the, the key caregivers on the psychiatry side. And another stat we use a lot is 60% of US counties don't have a psychiatrist who really drive most of the care in mental health. And so, and you mentioned inpatient acute psychiatry. So just for the listeners on the phone, folks in an inpatient psychiatric unit are a threat to themselves or someone else. They're not allowed to leave. It's somewhere in the seven to 10 length of stay a day. And, and we tell most of our clients that is the most acute patient in the psychiatric continuum. And a lot of the addiction industry, there's what's called a PMA, which is against medical advice. So if someone goes to alcohol treatment center, they can stand up one day and decide they want to leave. You can't do that in a psych hospital. So in that Realm, there's been a shortage of beds that's gotten worse and worse and worse for the last 50 years. Even though there's some companies out there that have built new beds and new hospitals, we're still well, well behind. So you had a lot of psychiatric facilities that were more long term in the 80s close, and we really replaced those with nothing. Most hospitals yep. have some psychiatric beds you know, on their floors, but it's not really a concerted effort. So that's uh, there are roughly 500 psych hospitals in the U.S., and some of those are attached to health systems, some of those are independent. UHS and Acadia are the two largest players there. And so that's the inpatient psych world. Think about that as the triage for mental health in our country. And the sector that we've seen a lot of investor interest over the last three or four years has been outpatient mental health side. That has been a sector that has been underserved for many, many reasons, which we can go into detail on for as long as I've been in bank. So it has not been a focus. It has not been thought of from investors. It's been more of an afterthought. And I think that has been one of the biggest challenges we're trying to fix in the sector. The sector today is set up to treat the very, very, very sick, as opposed to preventing them from getting very, very sick. As everyone's aware, mental health is chronic. It's not something that goes away, so it has to be managed. And that's what I think a lot of investors are focused on. You know, What are modalities, what are ways, digital health, telehealth, outpatient, where we can really care for folks on a long-term basis so they can really have a healthy and independent life versus 15, 20 years ago, it was a very, very difficult cycle of people who were constantly hospitalized and back out and then back in that same boat you know, a few months later. So the sector is getting better. And I think people acknowledge the challenges we face, but I think people at least are laying out plans to try to address it.
0: Talk about the service mix a little bit. I mean, you you mentioned inpatient, obviously we've seen kind of the same thing. You know, inpatient has a supply of inpatient psych facilities and hasn't seen a lot of significant growth. But the question really is, is where are you guys seeing the most investment right now? And even within that, do you think there's pockets that are underinvested and people need to look at more. I do
1: think it follows the same trends you see in broader medicine. I think the payers, the patients, and investors like businesses that can treat patients on an outpatient, lower cost, longer term basis. If you look at just acute care hospitals, how much of what they used to do 10 years ago is now in an outpatient setting. The example we always use is a, a total knee procedure used to be a two or three day length of stay in the hospital. Now that's done in an outpatient surgery center, you're home that afternoon, you're doing you know, PT on an outpatient basis. I think that's the lens in which we look at healthcare is, hey, wh- what's the preferable location for the patient to be treated? And is it cost effective? Is it efficient? And home-based, outpatient-based, yes. The answer is yes, across the board. Those are much much lower in cost. And I think what well, we don't have outcomes yet in behavior. That's a little frustrating that it's such a siloed industry, but eventually what you'll see, I do think you'll always have inpatient psych. You'll have psych hospitals. If you think about a psych hospital, their radius of patients is about 500 miles. So they see a lot of patients from different areas, so they don't have to have one in every zip code. But I do think you'll see kind of the PHP, IOP and outpatient verticals built up significantly in communities to support the population. Because I think if we can really, if we're going to intervene earlier, take care of folks on a longer term basis again, it's chronic, that sets the patient and that community up for success, which is what we all
0: want. Absolutely. Going back to inpatient, you know, obviously a a lot of where we currently with inpatient was that, you know, a number of states in the late 70s went for kind of deinstitutionalization. With our current debate about societal problems in general, have you seen any indication that the conversation is kind of turning back to the idea that maybe we do need more institutional opportunities for people?
1: I would agree. I haven't, met the federal level, maybe state. State levels, some of those conversations are happening. But I think the tragedy is those institutions had a, maybe a bad reputation uh, for people being committed, not being able to leave. But I think it was a humane way to, to treat people, care for people who maybe couldn't live independently or had some pretty developed mental health issues that would prevent them from living what you and I would determine as kind of their normal lives. The tragedy there is we closed all those institutions and replaced them with nothing. And so if you think about societal and people see this in the news, homeless population, drug. Drug abuse especially when that cohort it's an epidemic it's a lot of cities don't know what to do don't know how to treat so it was a much more humane way to do it but I do think it's getting the coverage it needs now in the media in the news you know a lot of big cities really really struggle with this and it's not humane to the, the folks who are, who are on the street but I do think that a combination of all of that we had a client a few years ago and it was cash pay business when we first represented them but they were psych hospital guys they were one of them was from UHS one of them was from HCA and they saw saw once their patients were discharged from the psych hospital, there's no step down level of care zero. If you have a stroke, you go to the acute care hospital in your community, then you step down probably to inpatient rehab and then yeah. you step down to home health. That doesn't work that way in behavioral. You leave the psych hospital, you are back on the street. And so we've got to be thoughtful and do a better job of designing a care continuum where, that really, really takes care of the patient holistically and supports them through that process because it is a process. Someone who's been in a psych hospital is at a psychotic break, a bunch of things that could be really, really harmful to them or someone else. And so just putting them back where they were before, I don't think is a very good idea, but that's what we do today. And so the businesses we see that are becoming that next level of care, in our opinion, are very valuable. They play a very valuable role in the system. But heretofore, this whole sector of psychiatry slash mental health has been siloed and not coordinated. And that doesn't work.
0: Well, obviously we're still, kind of watching to see if if states even out west will change some of their prohibitions on involuntary commitment. But obviously there are two major things that have happened in the near history that I think are positive, that are very interesting. First one was when the mental health parity uh, regulations finally went into effect. I mean, that that's certainly when we saw a lot of ramp up in volume and investment and, you know, not just behavioral care, but obviously substance abuse, which we we talked about on, on our last episode. The second one was, of course, uh, in Washington, uh, HHS uh, rewrote the Medicaid managed care role and took what had started as a pilot and then basically said, for those of you in the audience who don't know, obviously Medicaid pro- prohibits paying for inpatient mental health care. So they won't pay for an inpatient psych hospital stay unless under the, you know, the new managed care guidelines, unless the patient is part of a Medicaid managed care organization, which these days is north of 80% of all lives. So it kind of created this very broad backdoor against that IMD prohibition.
1: Yeah, we've seen businesses and not-for-profits a lot of times in different communities around the country that, so to speak, are the social safety net for the communities in which they operate. And they're doing the stabilization beds, which, you know, go by different names in different states where it's a one or two day length of the stay getting someone stable, getting them down to lower levels of care. And we've seen some of those businesses again, not-for-profits build up pretty substantial foundations. To support the communities they're in, so they're even on a Medicaid only base, they're making money enough money where they can set aside that money to benefit the community. Because patients that show up at the ER with that are primary mental health, you know, those are usually folks the hospital doesn't want. So where do they go? And I think you'll see some really unique models. We've seen some models uh, around the country where there's a fee for service track, there's a value based track, kind of capitated track on that kind of stuff. And I think there's going to be a lot of innovation in this sector because the population that needs care is. So so large the demand drivers are unfortunately not going away and we're just not on the supply side we're not we're not even close to meeting the demand anytime soon
0: yeah that's right all right from our view obviously reimbursement in the inpatient hospital setting especially under medicare is, has been stable and, and generally pretty good but when you think about across like iop or some of the other modalities what are your views on reimbursement in terms of is it good Is it been under pressure or or is it been even expanding
1: it's historically not been good the outpatient mental health side has been underfunded for years, decades. And so when you look at the public companies or the big behavioral companies, they've usually de-emphasized that as a part of their continuum because they're not paid for it. You know, think about it this way. In Tennessee, uh, where I am, an outpatient mental health psychotherapy visit in-network with Blue Cross is a, about $38 for that visit. If it's an employed psychiatrist doing that visit, the cost of that the doctor for that hour is $100. And so that's why you see most psychiatrists on the outpatient side are out of network because they lose money at the gross profit level. And and so I think I think that is changing. I think the other thing that's changed is a lot of the innovators in outpatient mental health, be them digital, some of the folks like Lifestance or Refresh who opt bought, yeah, they've added ancillaries to the sector, which didn't exist before. So it doesn't really matter if it's psychotherapy or just primary care, in general primary care. If you're just doing that $30 to $40 visit, it's very difficult to scale and you probably can't make any money. You probably can't make a profit. So that's why it's been unattractive. That is changing So. I think one, I need the payers recognize they need to increase the rate, so it's one of the few segments in healthcare we see that happening. And then I think the ancillaries, things like DBT, TMS, you know, ketamine-assisted therapy, those are all things that are really the, the ancillary services that some of the patients need in these practices. So you, you may look at TMS as it may only be five percent of the patients that need TMS, but in some of these instances, it's half the revenue of the practice. So think about those ancillaries; they're almost like the surgery that you see in kind of normal medicine, right? If you were just an optometry practice and you never did cataract, it would probably break even. And so I think we're just starting to say, you know, the, the psychotherapy visit is your funnel. It's the front of house. It's a, it may be a loss leader, but that's how you identify real issues with patients. And then you have the toolkit to help them. Most psychiatrists don't have that. And so I, I do think you're going to see a lot of that over the next you know decade.
0: Yeah, I know we're touching on what we talked about on our substance abuse focus, but it is interesting because, you know, you do see kind of continuum providers on suds that do combine a lot of IOP, uh, you know, after detox. So, you know, they are kind of filling that gap on step down and, and sort of chronic management. But we've seen some that had pretty good contracted network rates. I don't recall breaking that down on sort of how much follow-up visits were, but, you know, obviously something something works out in, in kind of the whole arrangement so that, you know, it's pretty profitable for the provider.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely getting better. You know, and I think we've seen the VA, Brian, we've seen some of the blues. We've seen Optum you know, move the rates up. I think it's an acknowledgement of they haven't invested in the industry. We talked about the number of people who have conditions. I think access to mental health is much more difficult for Americans than general health. A client of mine always says, hey, if your, if your kid falls down and needs stitches, you have a hundred places in your community to take them. To get stitched up right if they have a mental health issue or you know bipolar i mean go through a, a list of stuff you really are going to be scratching your head on, on where to take them and so we've got to improve as a country on this preventative care and longer term longitudinal care for folks is one of the things we talk about a lot here if your mental health is in serious decline you're typically going to develop a physical health issue right same way if you have a physical health issue you know someone who's had a really tough surgery or is home-based and can't move that that's person typically develops a mental health issue and so that's that's one of the things we've seen providers start to tie the two together and the two have to be they, you have to be healthy in both. And again, it gets down to breaking down silos and having coordinated care across the continuum. If you look at business plans, if you look at companies that are out there in this sector, they're all focused on that. It's such a huge market. They've got 10, 20, 30 years of work to do to get us there.
0: Let's talk about investing in the space. Obviously, it's a it's a pretty, pretty active every year. You know, I know just even from our own deal flow, it's probably between 20 and 25% of, of our deal flow. That could cover, you know, anything from suds to different types types of other behavioral services even you know smaller niche things like eating disorders but from your perspective banking in this like what do you think makes for an attractive asset I would
1: tend to say it's it has a similar theme that we see in other healthcare services what can be done in the home what can be done on an outpatient basis I do think if you're going to be a larger provider you're going to see them vertically integrated markets if you were to look at like a Summit Behavioral's business model they've got psych hospitals around the country and they've got in the same communities they're in they've got MAT outpatient they may be doing PHP and IOP out of their facilities so the larger players up market are going to be doing everything but in general the the folks that are attracting a lot of interest the folks that are growing the fastest tend to be the PHP IOP and then outpatient businesses within mental health i think the challenge a lot of investors have found in that segment is because there's been such underinvestment by the payers for a long time. It's not been recognized. You don't find the refrain we hear from private equity is, gosh, we love this sector. We love the thesis. We see the demand drivers. We can't find anything of scale. And that is true. There's not as big of businesses in these segments. Uh, I think in five years there will be. But if you look at what Life you know, Lifestance did, they're public now. I mean, they really built them some brick by brick, pretty small assets adding together to build some scale. An inpatient psyche psychiatric care. There are a lot of big players. UHS, Acadia, Summit, Springstone just sold to LifePoint. So a lot of activity and a lot of things at scale, but I do think you're going to see investors lean more towards the PHP, IOP and outpatient businesses first, because there's such growth and such demand there. And, that, and effectively, that, I think that's where the healthcare system is moving Any anyway.
0: Right. So it seems like the people you really want to tell to dive in and invest are people who have an interest, but also do a lot of deals in kind of the lower middle market, right? Because they're going to be assembling something like Legos. Our
1: advice to, if you were a private equity firm and you said, hey, we're thesis driven, this is a sector where, you know, we want to do outpatient mental health, we just believe in it, You know," and they've done all the work. Our advice typically is look at assets in the market, but really build a team get an executive or two build a team out that is has scaled multi-site you're not going to find people who've done that psych- psychiatric care, but I don't think it's, it's tremendously different. We did a deal two years ago now in Colorado and now codes they bill on the outpatient side, are, it's a relatively narrow band of codes. It's not complex, but that's our advice typically is, look, get a good executive team kind of built, get fantastic clinical leadership that's respected in the markets they're in, even if it's just one or two clinics and build off of that. Most of the folks we see in the space get kind of a foothold in a market and de novo around it. So they're recruiting, they're working with the payers on contracts, contracts, they're adding service lines. And I think that's a really, really good investment thesis. It's just a lot of PE firms kind of have, hey, we got our check size has to be this, you know, and I understand that. But in some of these spaces, you're gonna to have to start smaller if you want to get in on them.
0: Yeah, let's contrast this a little bit with the autism space. I know we were talking about in, in autism, you know, it's probably fair to say that all of the employees and the executives had a deep and abiding uh, passion. And, and it meant that, you know, integrating or building something definitely required a, a heavy heavy focus on making sure that you could create a good cultural fit. Does that hold true in in the psychiatric space as well? Or or maybe is it a little different?
1: Not as much in like the inpatient psychiatric world. Think about that more like a hospital. Yeah, it's it's really triage. The folks who are showing up there are in really rough shape. And so they're trying to get them stable through medication. If you remember in the 90s, that was cost-based reimbursement and length of stays were in the 30 to 40 days. If you fast forward to today, that's, I guess it was reimbursement changed and, and Brian, you probably know this better than me, but 2000, 2001, it went from a cost base to kind of a PPS reimbursement. So, it said another way, you know, providers were getting in the nineties, 1500 bucks, 2000 hours a day. And now I think Medicare pays 700 for inpatient psych, length of stay has been cut down to seven to 10 days. So I think they've gotten, the payers have really gotten after that to be, hey, this is this is triage, this is getting someone stable. But I think on the outpatient social work on that side, I, I would totally agree that culture fit mission are much more important to those employees. It can be very disruptive. The last two or three deals we've done in that sector We haven't, like the employees at the company, the investors were smart. They are just support only. Nothing's on their website. Nothing's on our client's website. Their employees don't see a difference. The same people are still running them. I think that's really, really smart. And a lot of those companies have created fantastic brand recognition in their markets. I think that's in autism, one of the things that has been a mistake is to take the name off the the practice that's been around for 20 years and put some new corporate name on it, change everything. This is not like a retail you know apple store or something like that where everything has to look the exact same i think every market has a little bit of its own feel and so the smartest people i think in these sectors are doing just that they're leaving the clinical ops those folks alone and saying, okay we can help you on contracting recruiting i.t we can do this stuff on the gpo side that's pretty interesting on saving we don't want to interrupt what's already working and i think that's really astute from an investing
0: standpoint yeah definitely that's great i think what providers need to
1: do on the outpatient side is they need to be, you know, in network, a partner with the payers and the patients. You haven't seen access is a tremendous problem. So most of the cash pay or out-of-network providers, it's mainly cash pay. They're just a subset of the population that can't even access that. 300 bucks for a 30-minute visit. So most of the folks I see are seeing a ton of patients at in-network rates, and then they have the ancillaries to deal with patients that need additional care. I mean, TMS being one of the ones you see the most. So it's it's, just, it's like other parts of medicine. I use the analogy all the time. You know, a dermatologist sees a big practice, sees 100,000 patients a year, and 5,000 present some form of skin cancer. Well, those 5,000 present, you know, they're, they represent about 50% of the revenue. That's the way those ancillaries work. You're really treating the, the patients who have a more acute condition and that's a higher cost, but you need to see high volume of patients on the just primary care side to deliver patients who need more of that. And it's still done on an outpatient basis. That's one of the main things that psychiatry has been missing.
0: So in terms of behavioral providers contracting in network versus out of network, it does seem like one very much in demand kind of X factor that helps out in those negotiations is whether you have the appropriate staff to do a pediatric, have a pediatric focus or a pediatric specialty.
1: There are very few places, I'll, I'll note a client of ours, Brian, which you may know, but it's a family care center and I give them a lot of credit. They're in Colorado Springs, all over Colorado now, but Revelstoke did their deal with us in- Two years ago, and that was their whole thesis. We want to treat the whole family. We want to treat not only the mom or dad who comes in, but the kids. No one else does. I mean, to our knowledge, we haven't seen anyone else do that well. But if you think about it, that makes a ton of sense. Hey, here's where we get our health care. Here's where we get our behavioral health care. And so they don't do autism, but they do everything else. I think you will see more of that. In my opinion, I don't have inside information with that company, but they have received pretty substantial increases from payers in their markets. And I think because it's acknowledged that they're the good guys and they're trying to take care of as many people as possible. So getting 15, 20% increases from the payers. And again, they're not asking for that. The payers are coming to them with that. And I think that to me, that's what a partnership should look like. You know, I think the payer acknowledges that these guys are doing right by the whole family, not just one sub-segment and not in, in one clinical vertical. And so kind of a behavioral medical home is what they've built. And I think it's really scalable.
0: No, that's pretty amazing. And I just noted even a typical behavioral practice, if they have a ped specialist among their doctors, that that's usually an added bonus when it comes to negotiating.
1: Yeah. That's, uh, that's right. You know, if I'm blue cross in a certain state, I'm looking at, okay, what types of patients do they treat? Is it full continuum? Great. You know, what ages of patients do they treat? And so I think having all that where they can really manage an entire family's behavioral health continuum, it's really powerful. And it, it you do not see that. We like, we don't have Anything like that here in
0: Nashville. All right. This is great. So to sum up, if you're thesis driven, you gotta be patient the way the the market is right now, you have to find a good team and build out with a smaller onesie twosie strategy until you get some scale. When you're thinking about opportunities, you know, what, what other factors do you consider? I mean, you know, in the in the autism space, we talk about kind of the supply of therapists. I think when, when we talk about that, you mentioned the fact that the number of psychiatrists has actually shrunk. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's forty eight thousand in 97 28,000 2018 it's projected to get 15,000 by 2030 so it's just it's a field it's an aging demographic too in psychiatry so it's a it's a huge challenge I know the universities are focused on on it as you well know that takes some time to correct it's been a uh, kind of precipitous decline now for a few decades and hopefully we can reverse it because it's there the kind of point across the board in inpatient and outpatient care
0: well if reimbursement is changing as you noted that that that's obviously one driver of it. I think that the sort of societal debate will, will also help to some extent. I mean, I think all we need to do is get off this podcast and flip on the news to see headline after headline youth mental health crisis.
1: It goes the gamut, right? It goes from you know, folks who are in facilities and getting care to talk about the homeless population and think about someone with mental health. They tend to abuse alcohol and other things as a, as a part of that. So that gets complex. And then you know, we've talked about things that are, especially in Nashville, a lot in the media recently, folks that are with guns and you have a person who's mentally unstable who gets a hold of a lot of guns. And you know, what do they do with that? And going into your place of work or a church or a school and doing what these people do, it's, it's, it's a function of a mental health crisis that we haven't dealt
0: with. I expect behavioral will be keeping us all busy for... For quite a while to come. Everything you've mentioned, kind of all roads lead back to more investment in behavioral, more continuum care, more inpatient beds for, you know, even short term durations, and then just more doctors in general needed. Yeah,
1: huge demand. Unfortunately, and I do think we're doing we're taking the right steps. We're not ignoring it as a country, communities. It is front and center. And so I think everyone knows that we need to invest. And so I think you're seeing new models come up. I think you're seeing the payers acknowledge they haven't and the states acknowledge they haven't done what they need to do. Because if left untreated, this is the result we get. And it's it's not a good one.
0: Well, LA, this has been another fascinating and educational journey. It's been a great series. I I really appreciate y'all joining us. And I think all of our listeners will agree that it was very informative and definitely food for thought. So I look forward to our continued conversations as the deals keep coming in and in this broad space.
1: Likewise, really enjoyed it. Thanks for
0: having me. Absolutely. Thank you everybody for listening. As always, we do these on a pretty regular basis. So look for more episodes to come out. We'll also see you on the road at our conferences. And as always, if you like what you hear and you you have any suggestions, feel free to drop us a note either directly or through our LinkedIn page for Farragut Square. And take care, everybody. We'll talk again soon. This material is for General Information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.